Hello, and welcome to In All of Us Command. I'm Kate. I'm Aaron. And we will be learning about national anthems. Each week, we choose a new country at random, we learn a little bit about this country, and then we listen to their anthem. After listening, we will rate the anthem based on several criteria to see how they all stack up in our humble opinion. And we don't want you to think that because of the title, we're huge fans of O Canada. In fact, we plan to dunk on it pretty much constantly throughout the show, and we don't expect it to finish highly at all. Yeah, like, I was worried when we started the show that we were going to find out that just every country had a terrible anthem like ours, and no. I've been relieved to find that I like just about every anthem we've heard more than O Canada. Yeah, some of them are very good. Some of them are great, O yeah. Canada sucks. O Canada's so If you're listening, dull. Mr. Trudeau, let's rewrite the anthem and get a better one. He's not listening. He, nor would he be the person <laughs> I'd trust with that decision. No, me neither, but... I mean, someone's got to get it started, right? I guess. Maybe we should, like, tweet at him. Maybe. I don't think that would work either, but we could try. We'll anyway, figure it out. We'll get Mr. Trudeau's PR person. Let's, uh, let's address the, uh, the little elephant we got in the room here, and that's the fact that we have not done this podcast in a few months. We took a break. We moved. We kind of didn't warn you we were taking a break. We didn't know. Yeah. Kind of. We moved and then the microphone broke. Yeah, and then it's it's been a whole string of technical issues and finally we've replaced the microphone and we are back and ready to go and to learn about... The United Arab Emirates. All right. It's going to be fun. This is a bit of like a historical mouthful, um, so get ready. All right. So um, the area that is the UAE currently was originally known... As the Arabian Peninsula, okay. it is bordered by Saudi Arabia to the west and Oman to the east slash northeast. Um, there have been disputes, though border disputes with Saudi Arabia and um, Iran, not Oman. Sorry, my autocorrect screwed me over. Just replaced it with another country. Yeah, it's Iran, <laughs> friends. Okay. It's Iran. Oman, I believe, is also a place. It is. Yeah, but I I don't think the one we're talking about right now. Um, so there have been, as I said, border disputes with Saudi Arabia and Iran um, regarding the ownership of some islands. Um, Iran, of course, being like across the Persian Gulf. Sure. Um, which is going to be like very important in a little bit. Um, right, so, because modern Iran is what was ancient Persia. Yes. Yeah. This, I'm going to talk about this also, but we will do it now. Cool. Um, when I say Persia, I mean Iran. Yeah. Modern day. Yeah. But it used to be called Persia and still... Kind of is sometimes. We went to a Persian restaurant one Yeah, time. I mean, I think kind of depending on who you ask. Like, I've known people who would tell you that they were of Persian heritage. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's some nuance there, mm -hmm. but I wouldn't pretend to be an expert on it. Yes, me neither. But I know a few things. <laughs> um, so the... Where did I get to? Um, so the, the definition of the region is not really agreed upon so when also i'm talking about the arabian peninsula it's like it's it's not historically pinned down that much although there were a lot of changes aren't peninsulas kind of hard to debate no this there's stuff around fair enough yeah um, <laughs> and but it probably okay more or less includes um modern day yemen oman qatar Bahrain. Yes. Kuwait, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE. Okay. Do you mean Oman this time? I do. Okay. Maybe it is Oman then that I meant before. I'm going to check a map in the break. And cool. 
clarify which parts are O-Man and which parts are Aram. Yes, and figure cool. out whether my autocorrect was screwing me over or okay. if I'm just stupid. So we'll see. Uh, the area has a really long and rich history with evidence of human habitation going back to about 6,000 before the Common Era. Mm-hmm. Um, they were mostly hunter-gatherer fisher communities, and there's evidence of artifacts made of pottery, um, often with a sort of black geometric design, which... Okay, cool. Yeah, it's neat. It's a little bit... Um, I was thinking a little bit like the Greek stuff, but I think maybe more geometric but I'm thinking yeah, you the black on the orange. I, I wouldn't call the Greek designs particularly geometric. No, but yeah, I can the see color scheme, the I color think. scheme for sure. M- more than the shapes. Um, the Iron Age also shows evidence of ceramics, bronze, gold, stone, and jewelry, and weapons and tools such as knives, swords, axes, and arrowheads. So a pretty prolific people building yeah. some stuff. Um, there are also discoveries of large underground tombs, where they think that many like small sort of surrounding villages would all bury their dead in the same place. Okay. So like a burial ground. Yeah, yeah. but underground. Cool. Though. Um the the photo I saw was just of a guy like looking down a big hole. So I guess it's So not like a cave, down. like they dug a big hole. I, I think they dug a hole. Okay. I didn't research how they built them. Sure, no problem. <laughs> but um that was my impression. Cool. Yes. Uh, so then representatives of the Prophet Muhammad arrive in the UAE around 630 Common Era, mm-hmm. um, introducing Islam and really like setting the course for the, the future of the United Arab Emirates. For sure. Um, Islam really catches on. Super popular. Everybody likes it. Um, this is evidenced also by the many like beautiful mosque and religious structures that you can see uh, still today. Um there are currently about 76% of the UAE's citizens who are Muslim. Um, okay. So it's, it's popular. It's, Honestly, I'd have guessed higher. Like, because you can't even get into, like, Mecca and places if, if you're not Muslim. Yes. Um, there are, though, there's a pretty big um, uh, immigrant population as well. A lot of the workers okay. are from places besides the UAE, um, and they bring with them their religions although i think a lot of it is not really like officially recognized okay like you can be a christian or you can be buddhist or hindu but you can't really like establish an organization yeah Yeah. it's i don't know if it's illegal exactly but it's not really don't don't do it smiled upon socially Yeah, yeah yeah um it's one of those countries where the religion is very firmly tied to the whole like social structure. That was my understanding. That's why I was surprised to hear it's as low as 76. Yeah, it is because of those incoming populations. Mm -hmm. Um, So the arrival of Islam um, is followed by a period dominated by Muslim trade and commerce through the Red Sea and the Mediterranean. Trade is very important um, in the area at at this time, but also like in the future, as we will see, Um, it's really like the main, the main commerce thing that is happening is the spice trade and all the movement of goods across the water there. So this area then is pretty significant in the spice trade. Yes. Yeah. And we're going to see in just a minute. um, There are several sort of eras of European invasion. Mm -hmm. Um, We're going to talk about the Portuguese, the Dutch and the British who are all going to smell the money coming off the spice trade. And show up to take advantage. It was such a major driver of the economy back then, spices. Huge, yeah. huge. And if you think about, also like the British especially are going to use it as like a, a route to India, mm-hmm. basically, which is where they had a lot of stuff happening as we 
No, and as we will cover when we talk about India. Oh, that'll be a doozy of an episode. Indeed, it will. It will. Um, yeah, now that we've said that, I'll probably get it. <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. It'll be fun. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so first, we're going to talk about the Portuguese, um, who in the 15th century are getting all hot and bothered because everybody's exploring and making big discoveries and they're like, oh, we want a piece of that also. And then also they're all Christians and they're looking to spread that around as well. And this is not the first country that like their first European contract has been, or contract, contact <laughs> has been with uh, with Portugal. No, like, it's true. I've been, I knew they, they had some colonial outreach, but I've been surprised at just the sheer outsized influence yeah. that Portugal has had on the world, They considering yeah. what a small country it is. It's true. They made quite a big impression early on, I think. Maybe almost too early, and then got like beat out by the I, British that, and stuff a little bit later. Certainly, the impression I got is um, Portugal's peak was earlier than sort of the main colonial yeah. era. Yeah. But uh, yeah, they they really had a lot more reach than than I understood before we came into this podcast. Me too. We've been learning a lot about Portugal. Um, so they, as I said, kind of smell the money coming off the spice trade. Um, that up until this point is controlled by Muslim merchants. So it's mm-hmm. kind of an internal thing um but the portuguese have a big strong fleet and a lot of like nautical know-how and they're quite technologically advanced so they first come around and they so that like gives them an advantage yeah that's really what allowed them to have the influence they had yes is their the boats naval superiority absolutely which the british have too but uh, they come a little bit later into this um so first the portuguese are looking to join the slave trade coming out of africa that also like kind of ties into this area a little bit. Um, Then this guy, Pedro de Covila, uh, starts investigating the trade happening in the Indian Ocean. In 1498, explorer Vasco de Gama takes a boat around the Cape of Good Hope and lands at uh, Calicut in India, which opens what was quoted in the article I was reading as like the sea route to India. Okay. So this is like, there's another way to get there now. You can go around or you can go... Through, By I guess. land, yeah. Yeah. Um, and they're like, ooh, we can, we know how to get there. <laughs> so um, this obviously is huge. Um, the Portuguese are now very interested in taking control of the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Gulf to control all the trade and associated money um, and basically just take it from the native Arab people who had been dealing all of that to begin with. Um, the Portuguese king, I thought this was a fun fact, is so impressed by this da Gama fellow that he gives him the title, and I thought this was just fantastic, um, Lord of the Conquest, Navigation and Commerce of Ethiopia, Arabia, Persia, and India. I like Lord of the Conquest. Yeah, Lord of the Conquest is a great title. It's not as good as what Idi Amin called himself. Yeah, but he sucked. <laughs> but he sucked. Um, these if guys this suck dude, too like, a little bit. Oh, fair enough. I was going to say maybe this dude like lived up to his name a little bit more, but I guess being Lord of the Conquest of Ethiopia <laughs> and Persia and shit, not really a great name to live up to. No, he just... It's not really behavior we should encourage. It's not, but if you're going to get a cool title, I can see why it maybe appealed to people. Anyway, um, so the, the Portuguese hold a pretty serious monopoly between 1515 to about 1560, um, they're forcing traders essentially to buy more or less a hall pass so that they can come through. Right. Um, and they build these fortified ports kind of along the way to enforce that. 
Um, then in the early 1600s, the power starts to fade away a little bit. There is resistance from the native populations, as there should be. Um, and also because other European nations are now like, hmm, there's something happening over here. Let's go around and see what that's about. And we're probably coming up now to the point where Portugal cannot really defend their yes. colonial holdings against those other nations. Yes. So the next big one is the Dutch, who also have had a bigger... Yeah. Absolutely. Position. I think about Holland as being this like cutesy little gingerbread place. They, they were ruthless sometimes. Anyway, I didn't fully consider that. Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly, certainly some of these European nations that have at least here have reputations as like cute little mm -hmm. cottagey bakery filled nations. Yep. Like, wait till we learn about Belgium and the Congo. That's yeah. some of the most horrific shit that was ever carried out on the human race. Like, yeah, there's, there's some bad stuff. There's, yep. Yep. So, um, the Dutch had like been around a little bit already, but not in a huge capacity. Then in 1622, the Portuguese lose control of the Island of Hormuz, which is an Island off the coast of Iran, um, closer to Iran than to the UAE. If you look at it on a map, um, the Dutch, the English, and the French all see an opening here and, like, jump on it. Um, the Dutch and the English start out as allies, but that falls apart pretty quickly when they realize they're in competition with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and the Dutch actually refuse to pay customs to the British, which, obviously, the British don't like very much. <laughs> but the Dutch do a smart thing, um, or at least a strategically advantageous thing, um, in 1623, when they make a deal with Shah Abbas I, who is at the time the king of Iran, um, where they get free trade on the Persian side of the Persian Gulf. In exchange, they buy a certain amount of silk from the king, and everybody's happy. Okay. Um, through the 16th century, the Dutch really dominate trade in the area, kind of taking Portugal's place a little bit. Um, Persia, or as I said, modern-day Iran... Um, allow the Dutch and the British to do their trade here because they get military protection out of it. However, then a Dutch-British war happens in about 1652, um, allowing the Dutch to take over some of the English territory. And this goes pretty good for them. Um, but then later in the 1750s, the Dutch hold is weakened because now there's a three-way war, again, between them, the English, and the French. Right. They have a weird, like... <laughs> A weird thing going on here. Um, then they start, I think, panicking a little bit. And in 1753, they try to like regain a bit of a foothold on the island of Karg, um, but they lose it a few years later. They still continue trading a little bit, but this is really like the end of the Dutch era, right. if you want to call it that. However, the Dutch also apparently made quite a decent contribution in terms of cartography, especially in the oceans okay. to the area. So I guess a lot of the good information that started coming about that can be credited to the Dutch. Sure. Which is kind of neat. And now our dear friends, the English. Uh, I'm sure they were very polite <laughs> and reasonable the whole time. That's what I'm expecting, given the history of this show. Yes. Um, okay. This is this is weird and like quite complicated. So you're getting the fast version. Sure. Yeah. Here, um, I would expect nothing less. So, so um, the English presence in the area really comes through the East India Company, beginning at about 1600. 
this is so they can get in on the silk trade. Yes. As the Dutch power sort of fades, the British rise a little bit, but they're really just there to like capitalize on the trade money, and they don't really want to bother with the local politics or the French, who of course are like there too because there's always the French. Like, yeah, really, lurking. really. Why would they? Know. Like, especially if it's being done by the East India Company. Like, yeah. it doesn't make any sense that they would want to get involved in the politics no, no, if there they isn't. could keep making money without doing so. Yes. Um, However, there is a lot of local squabbling. For this, um, we're going to talk about the Kazemi family. Um, tweet us if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, who rise to prominence in the 18th century. Um, the family is actually still around. They're one of the oldest sort of ruling. Still in the UAE? Yes. Cool. Um, they, I think, sort of run one of the emirates. I don't okay. know which one. Um, but they're still very important. And this is kind of their, their rise. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The the Oman dynasty declines in the 1700s, and the Kazemi family see an opportunity and to take it and get more control of ports, giving them a really strong maritime presence. However, there's also the Al-Busaid dynasty, um, who have a lot of power inland. They see the Kazemi showing up, and they're like, oh, no, I don't think so. Um, and they challenge them, which leads to a good old-fashioned like pirate and plunder kind of a yeah. thing. Um, where I guess taking a boat around is pretty dangerous because you can get nailed by the other guy's boat. The British at this time are trying to set up their trading company and they enter into an alliance with the Al Busaid. And are they the ones, are they the ones doing most of the pirating or are the Kazmis doing most of the pirating or are they just pirating each other kind of thing? I think they're pirating each other. Okay. I'm not 100% sure on just that. Just fighting for, like, dominance of that sea route, yes, basically? Yes, just okay. general upset and squabbling arises. Um, for a number of reasons, the Kazimi obviously aren't happy that the British sided with the Abu Sa'id dynasty, um, which leads them to then start confronting the British about it. And the British retaliate, and because they're the British, and they also have a strong military and... Boats and stuff, they they do pretty good. Mm -hmm. They do pretty good at that. Um, Finally, they sign a peace treaty in 1820 to limit the aforementioned plundering pirate behavior um, along the coast, which I think is, like, mostly pretty successful. Okay. This, though, gives the British a lot of control and, like, more formal control over the area. Then there's this other thing we have to talk about that is very confusing because it goes by many, many different names. Okay. Um, called the Trucial States, which I think is like the most sort of official one. Anyway, so the Trucial States um, are are established through treaties that are signed with, that the British sign with a number of different uh, sheikdoms. And there's like different treaties for each sheikdom because they all have different needs and right. kind of different people. And this really lays the basis for what is currently the UAE. It's Right. This is where we start to unite yes, the Arab Emirates. The Emirates yeah. start to come together. So the, these sheikdoms will essentially become what are the present day Emirates, like okay. more or less, give or take kind of a thing. Um, then also, though, the, the sheikdoms and the trucial states, that becomes an official British protectorate in 1820. Okay. Which previously I actually didn't think... Had been official, but the thing is, it's a little bit different than the previous protectorates we've seen. When this happens, well, a lot of the protectorates we saw came out of World War One, which were still 
yeah. a century before. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I think mostly in the African nations that we talked about. Well, yeah, because um, Germany, like at the time, Germany and uh, the Ottoman Empire had a lot of influence on that area. And there was the League of Nations, which yes. I'm sure doesn't exist yet in 1820. No, I don't think so. Um, but it is established basically because the British, the British don't care that much about controlling or colonizing what is the Trucial States. Right. They just want their route to India. That's all they care about. Yeah, they want um, to, like, calm down the politics in this area so they can sail through yeah, without getting pirated yeah, every they just time. Want, they want to go through, they want to make their money off the spices and the tea yeah. and not bother with anyone else. So it's, the protectorate exists, but it's a little bit less, like, we're going to take over your country and kill all the people kind of a thing than they do some other times. Uh, or And they also don't really seem interested in, like, changing the political system. Okay. Which... You know, also, they they don't do in many of the African countries that we right, covered. Right, um, they're they're trying to keep the peace, but purely for their own financial yes, interests. Yes, precisely. Um, then in 1968, um, the British announced that they're going to pull their military out of the Persian Gulf um, by 1971. Plans at this time are then shaping up to form a confederation with the areas that the British are now going to be leaving behind. Um, they negotiate for several years and decide instead to become independent nations. Um, the United Arab Emirates are formed December 1971 with six emirates. Uh, the seventh emirate, Raz al-Khaimah, uh, joins in 1972. The other six emirates are Abu Dhabi, Dubai, Sharjah, uh, Ajman, Umm al-Kuwain, and Fujairah. I really hope I said that right. Uh, the capital city is Abu Dhabi. The confusing thing is that the United Arab Emirates are a collection. So each emirate has a ruler who is usually just an important family uh, that goes back generations, as we talked about earlier. Um, but they also have a federal government system. The president is ruler of Abu Dhabi. His name is His Highness Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed al Zayan, I think. Uh, the ruler of Dubai is His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al Maktoum. Uh, there's also a vice president, prime minister, and defense minister. Okay, so does each then emirate have its own capital as well? I believe so. Right. But Dubai is like the big one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, each emirate also has its own court and police force. Um, and the also the emirates in general are the second largest economy in the Middle East after Saudi Arabia. Okay. Which when I read it, I was like, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. But yeah, absolutely. It, it's not the kind of stuff you just... No. Um, the economy used to be really concentrated in oil and natural gas, but recently they're trying to diversify as that becomes, you know, less of a good option. Yeah. Um, it's also a major transit hub and a tourist destination. The sort of cultural life is kind of conservative by Canadian standards. There are heavy fines and imprisonment for mental health medications having or like possession of. Sure. Um, it's illegal to criticize the ruling families or political systems. You can't live with a common law partner and you can get a jail sentence for being LGBTQ+. So uh, today, most of the population consists of immigrants and foreign workers who come mostly from Asia and, sorry, South Asia and the Philippines. This has caused a little bit of a human rights tussle sure. as working conditions are maybe not always the best. Not super guaranteed. Not yeah. super guaranteed. Um 
There is also um, mostly urban population, which makes sense given that it's a desert and it's not yeah. maybe a great place to be growing a lot of stuff. Sure. They do grow some things, um, but it's not like a big import-export food kind of a place. So, fun facts. Fun facts. Fun me. facts. The national animal is the Arabian oryx, which is an antelope type of animal. Yeah. Um, we'll maybe post a picture of this. They're pretty cute looking. Oryxes are pretty cool. They're pretty cool, uh, which is also, incidentally, the national animal of Jordan, Oman, uh, Bahrain, and Qatar. Cool. Which I thought was interesting, too. So they must be popular? Yeah, or common, or at common? least. Yeah. Um, which is funny, because here, like, you don't see a gazelle ever. Well, they're not. We don't have that here. Yeah. here. <laughs> so I feel, I feel if I went and I saw an oryx, I'd be like, whoa, that's so cool. And other people would be like, that's that's average, like, yeah. every day, whatever. Like when, you know, you go to Montreal and there's tourists taking pictures of the squirrels. Yeah, or like when we went to school and there were just deer walking on the path yeah. and we all got super used to it. <laughs> it's true. It's true. My mom would come around and she'd be like, there's deer. I'm like, yeah, I know. I'm getting away all the time. <laughs> um, there are many, many types of birds who live on the coast of the UAE um, and they draw actually an international bird watching crowd because okay. they get so many different kinds. Um, and I guess they're, they're really remarkable. Um, I'm not a big bird watcher, but I can see how if you were, that would be fun. The flag uh, was designed by Abdullah Mohammed al-Maina in 1971 when they got independent mm-hmm. from the British. And he was 19 at the time, which I thought was pretty cool. Cool. Um, was it like a competition kind of thing? I think so. Mm-hmm. I'm not 100% sure. I just thought it was cool that he was so young. Yeah. Um, the national dish is something called kabsa, which is a mix of chicken or lamb, rice, veggies, and spices like cinnamon, cardamom, saffron and nutmeg nice that sounds good however today we will not be cooking we will be ordering shawarma yes yeah i love shawarma i'm excited because i've really only had like cafeteria shawarma yeah you you have never been like excited about shawarma no because i never had i'm i'm always psyched to get it and you're always like oh i guess we could go for shawarma. yeah like i had it once as i say in a cafeteria and that was at our weird deer school. At our weird deer school. And it was not that good. The chicken was pretty sketchy. Um, so then I didn't really get it anymore after that. Um, also, Dubai is home to the world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa, which stands at 828 meters tall. Jesus. Yep. That is tall. Uh, for reference, the CN Tower is only 553 meters. The Space Needle is 184. And the Empire State Building is 381 meters tall. So that's pretty impressive. They also have a big mall in Dubai that has a fountain with a light show. Cool. You can go at night and they it's like music and fountains. Can we get a video and, of that to put in the show notes? Yeah, that sounds super I think cool. so. I was watching one on YouTube when I... Fell down a hole. Nice. Being like, what is this mall? Why don't we have this here? Um, so that's all everything I have about the country itself. All right. Then Should let's we... uh, take a break and listen to those anthems. Let's do it. And I will find out if it's Oman or Iran yeah. from before. Yeah, that's uh, that's really the only question I have is if we could clarify <laughs> which parts were Oman and which parts were Iran. I will get a map and all we right. will look at it together. Okay. Sounds good. Cool. See you in a bit. عيشي بلادي عاش اتحاد اماراتنا عشتي لشعب 
دينه الإسلام هديه القرآن Welcome back. We have just listened to Ishi Baladi, or Long Live My Country, slash Nation, is the translation. It's a little bit... We've also eaten can some go either shawarma. Way. We also ate shawarma. Shawarma is delicious. I don't know... Shawarma is so good. Why did I not like that? Because I only had the cafeteria Because you only had the cafeteria one. shawarma. But so, yeah, shawarma is one of my favorite things. Real shawarma eat. is awesome. Everybody should eat it. Absolutely. <laughs> just like... There's so many good things in it. The chicken on like the vertical rotisserie shawarma thing is amazing mm-hmm. when it's done right and spiced right. And then you got like the cabbage and the pickles and everything that goes yeah. in. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing. So good. So I'm glad we ate that. I'm glad we listened to these anthems. Um, we're going to talk for a sec about what we know about how these got made or totally. how, the, how the anthem sort of came to be. So, um, originally, the anthem was instrumental only, um, composed by Egyptian composer Saad Abdel Wahab in 1971, again, at Independence, as we have seen. Um, Abdel Wahab also composed anthems for other Arab nations, including Libya. Oh, cool. So this dude's just like an anthem composer by trade? It kind of seems that way, yeah. That's sick. Which is pretty neat. So maybe he'll crop up again. Uh, the lyrics, at least in Libya. At least in Libya. Yeah. <laughs> so the lyrics were written um, apparently in three days by in 1986 by Dr. Araf al-Sheikh, commissioned by Acting Minister of Education Ahmed Humaid al-Tayyar. Okay. Sheikh is a writer, scholar, and a poet. He said the process was very stressful, but that the words came to him, quote, like a vision. So there was some like anthem divine intervention here or something. Cool. However, um, I found a distinct lack of information about why it all happened like this. Yeah, well, I mean, like, did the did this composer, had he already written other anthems or would he go on to write other anthems? I don't actually know. Because if he had already written them, it seems likely that they just, you know, liked his work. Yeah, it. I'm going to just look it up real quick. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Okay, so we Googled it real quick, and um, Abdel Wahab did write the Libyan National Anthem, like, many years before. Cool, so it seems likely they just thought he did a good job on that one and and hired him. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, Also, to to follow up on our earlier question about what is Oman and what is Iran, um, and whether my autocorrect was being mean... um, the geography of the United Arab Emirates places it between basically Saudi Arabia and Oman. Iran is across the water. Cool. That makes sense. It does. It does. I forgot there was another country to the east. Okay. So now that we've got all of that sorted out, uh, let me just get my notes back here. 
You want to talk a bit about writing this anthem or you got some more history to lay on us here? No, that's the history. Okay. Um, we can we can now discuss the anthems themselves. What did you think of that first one? I thought it was really fun. The first one was the standout version I of agree. the three you showed. I found um, it and I was like, yes. Yeah, that was incredible. Like it was it was really cool the way they were doing it as like the world performs this anthem. Because yeah. as you said, it was for this like world expo that was canceled. It did not happen, yes. Because uh, of the, the pandemic. But um, yeah, they had parts of it being played on like a steel drum. They had all sorts of hand percussion and violins and every instrument you can imagine was was in this thing. What's that one called? The lady was playing with like the finger picks on the strings. I actually have no idea. OK, because that was really that cool. Was. I liked that. I liked it the was sound very it cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I loved that one. I felt like I had really hit the jackpot when I found it. Um, especially because professional versions of these anthems are so like few and far between. Yeah. And even when we get the live recordings, it's always like someone's cell phone half the time, yeah, which is really, fine, but it's not, you know, like what same. we were, what I was saying, at least as we were listening to these, is it, it seems like this is a country that actually performs their yes. anthem a lot in a way that a lot of these countries haven't. Yes, it does seem that way. Um, certainly the, the second version I found also, like, the second version polished. was also fantastic. Yeah. Um, I, I haven't seen it done quite like that. Yeah, just before. like the the really tight close harmonies of of all of that were really impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, they all look very serious. On all of them, they do look very serious. <laughs> look very serious. But and I don't know. The the third one was adorable. The, I, like, they look so serious son, too. Harmonica duo. <laughs> I thought that was great. Um, they were really cute together. They're so obviously related. And I loved the little screen at the end of like the kids name. Yeah, <laughs> it is great. Um, I thought that was great. I also like how oversized the harmonica looks on the yeah. kid. Well, it's um, probably a chromatic harmonica. Those things are big. Yeah, <laughs> he's so tiny. <laughs> this big old harmonica. But I thought they did a really good job. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So overall, I thought that was fun. Um, shall we discuss the lyrics a little bit? Yeah. Um, I think they're not bad. Yeah, I agree. I find this kind of like normal anthem stuff that we've seen a fair bit now. This like, I love my country. God loves my country. My country is great. I think is how we summarized it once. Definitely. But I think there's, I think there's a little bit more going on with this one. Mm. I think there's like, I think there's some cool stuff with the way they use the repetitions. The repetitions are intriguing and they are different from some of the things we've seen before. I think it was in that first version we saw um because they had someone doing the sign language yeah interpretation and i i think it was maybe this my country my country my country part where he was doing the same thing over and over. i don't know it was cool and the work sincerely work sincerely like i i think it's interesting the way that they use that repetition to really hammer in the yeah. like anthem's priorities i yeah. think that's an interesting thing that works in its favor it's true it's true uh, so while the subject matter itself you're right, is certainly not pushing any of the anthem boundaries. I, I do think the way it's being used is quite interesting. Yes, I agree with you. Um, shall we write the lyrics? Yeah, I'm going to go for probably a solid 7.5 here. 7.5? That sounds good. Um, I'm going to give it a 7. Music. Music is this anthem's strong suit. I agree. I find it musically quite easy to listen to. It's quite catchy. Mm-hmm. Um, I find it's myself, got a lot of variety. Yeah, I'm like humming it to myself on the bus. And I'm like, what is that song? And then I realize it's... <laughs> we're <laughs> doing that a lot with Samoa after we did that one. <laughs> that one's really catchy yeah. too. Um, yeah, I think the the music is the music is great. I'm going to go probably nine on the music. 
Yeah, I could go for a nine as well. Okay. And background. It's like, it's cool, but there's not that much of it. Yeah, it's a little lacking in, like, depth. But I, I think it's really interesting that this guy built his career writing anthems for different Arab nations. Yeah. Like, what a thing to be known for. It's pretty cool. Um, So I think that at least gains it a few points. Yes, um, I agree. I think also the the disconnect between writing the music and writing the lyrics. And then the lyrics being like this divine yeah. thing. And I think too, on top of that, um, the way that the versions we listen to really acknowledge the, like the instrumental portion, mm-hmm. maybe not the acapella one, but the other two certainly um, sort of gave it some weight, which I thought was cool. So background, I'm going to go, I'm going to go six and a half. Six and a half. That seems fair. I'm going to go seven. All right. Significance. It is significant, I think. It is. It is. If you want to know what's important to people in the UAE, it can be found, I think, in this anthem. Totally. Um, It's lacking a little bit of the specificity that we've Mm. talked about before in how straightforward those, like, priorities are presented to us. Yeah. Um. It's also to, like, trying to pull together seven separate true things. Which is certainly kind of, no easy task, which especially is not easy. for one that's like a dozen lines long. Yeah, yeah. So they, I guess they could have made it longer. But then there was, what was that one that was really long and like too long? Oh, the long, super wordy too one. Too long. Yeah. <laughs> too it might have been Brunei or something. I think it might yeah. have been. It was, um, so I'm, I'm glad they didn't take that route because that's an option. Um, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm going to go for a seven here. Seven. Okay, I'm going to go seven as well. X Factor. I think it's got a lot of X Factor. It does have some X Factor. I agree. I agree. I love I love that middle eight with the with the repetition and the way it builds up to that big climax at the end. I think there's a lot of good stuff in this anthem. I'm going to call it an 8.5 for X Factor. I think that's very fair. I'm going to join you with an eight. All right. So um, let's uh, take a moment then and tally that all up. Yep, let's do it. And that gives us 69.5. 69.5, that's a pretty solid score. Just looking at our past ratings, that's going to put this in fifth place, uh, right above San Marino mm-hmm. and right below Lesotho. Okay, good to know. Yeah, yeah, so that's a pretty good place to be. Those were both good anthems. It, yes, it's true. It's true, they were. Um, before we whirl the random number generator yeah. for next week, two weeks from now, um, I will add that, I mean, this is pretty obvious, but the countries that most fucked, the UAE. You gave it to us in a nice clean list right in the episode there. Portugal, Holland, England, and sometimes France. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sometimes France. Sometimes truly, France. Truly the why of colonial <laughs> yeah, nations. I think so. I think so. Unless you're the Congo, maybe. And then... Th- anyway. Okay. Yeah. We we'll, will, we'll get into we'll that get at another day. When we that's, get there. That's going to be maybe the darkest episode we ever do. It's going to be a bad one. Well, a heavy one. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's find out what I'm doing in two weeks and if it's the Congo. Let's find out. <laughs> So 
So we rolled number 54, which gives me... Hold on, I gotta scroll up here a little bit. East Timor. Ooh, there's a country I know. Shit all of that. I don't know where that is. Do you know where that is? No, and I'm not gonna hazard a guess. You're not gonna say it's an island nation? No, I'm not. Okay. I have learned my lesson. (laughs) We will find out in two weeks if East Timor is an island nation. I'm, you know what? Mm -hmm. I'm gonna guess no. I also don't think it is, but... I have no grounds for that. I'm me just, neither. I'm, I'm just. Mm, I'm just talking. Yeah, me too. Let's. Uh, um, all right, folks. <laughs> I'm gonna be back here next week to uh, talk about Palestine. So if anyone wants to tune in and tell me all of the things I am almost certainly gonna get wrong, please do so. We we're, always love to hear from you. We're gonna try to create a supportive environment. <laughs> something very wrong? Did we skip an entire part of the story that's worth mentioning? That's very likely, and we'd love to hear the correct version. Please tweet us at IAOUC podcast or send us an email at inallofuscommandpodcast at gmail.com. We record these episodes a bit in advance, so you may not hear a correction right away, but we're not too big to admit we are wrong and it will be corrected.